This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Yo, what is going down, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the music! Show us that friggin' music. I'm Austin Hayden, and I am joined by the Show Me the Meaning crew. We've got Raymond. Hey, what's up, everybody? And, of course, we've got Ryan Haley. What up, film fans? And with a special guest this week, we have Dr. Kamasi Hill calling in. What's up, Kamasi? I'm from Detroit. I gotta say what we say in Detroit. What up, though? <laughs> there we go. Uh, so for people, Dr. Kamasi Hill is an educator, a filmmaker, an art curator, and a historian. He has a documentary that is soon coming, hopefully. It's been leaked out a couple of times called Born in the Struggle. It's about the children of black radicals, but also about hip-hop music. And he has a graphic novel that's going to be coming out in the fall that is about the Great Migration. We'll talk a little bit about that at the end. But can you give just a, a 30-second synopsis? Who are you? What's your story? What What is your output about? Oh, sure. No problem. Uh, let's see. Kamasi Hill, like I said, I'm originally from Detroit, Michigan, born and raised I became a scholar of history and religion about 20 years ago, and uh, I've explored everything with regard to African-American religion, uh, 20th century American religion, uh, popular culture, and of course, the 60s and 70s uh, culture, black power movement, civil rights movement. Uh, And I've been an educator for the past 27 years uh, and a filmmaker as well as a as an author. And as you said, I have a graphic novel coming out soon. So we, it's going to be the kind of perfect confluence of, uh, of, of stuff that kind of is in your wheelhouse for what we're going to be talking about this week. We're going to be talking about the documentary Summer of Soul that was recently released, directed by Questlove of Roots fame. And um, it's Austin, a documentary that, that, that highlights... That is not the, the name of it. Uh, and, and we need the full title, Austin. Uh, you, can't, you can't just call it Summer of oh. Soul. Or, or what was it? Or when the revolution? Or when the was re- not televised? revolution was not televised? Yeah. Could, could <laughs> I, okay. Scott Heron shout out. So, so, sorry to, sorry to, to, to steamroll you there. Listen, <laughs> please, no, please, steamroll as necessary when I need to be corrected. Um, uh, as I said, directed by Questlove, and it's basically a documentary that highlights the Harlem Cultural Festival of 1969, and it future uh, features music performances from Stevie Wonder, Mahalia Jackson, Nina Simone, The Fifth Dimension, Staple Singers, Gladys Knight and the Pips, Sly and Family Stone, etc., etc. And um, it's a really interesting documentary because it's going to kind of uh, or if not, it's going to. It does kind of highlight that intersection of uh, of hope through adversity, black music, black culture, um, but also told through the power of music as a sort of transformational and bonding tool. So what we'll do, as always, we'll go around and get first impressions. What was it like the first time you watched it? If you've seen it on repeated viewings, has it hit you in a different way? Um, just kind of a quick little uh, uh, quick little insights here, and then we'll kind of start peeling things back on the other side of the recap. But let's start with Kamasi. So Dr. Hill... What do you think, first impressions of Summer of Soul? Well, you know, the, I think the first thing that I thought of was my parents because, mm. you know, my parents are, I guess my, 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 my parents would have been in their early 20s, like literally in their early 20s, like 21, 22, when that happened. And so I thought about them and kind of, you know, they say like 17 to 20, 21 
are the most pivotal years of you engaging music and popular culture because it kind of defines your life in terms of like what your musical tastes and interests are. This is the first mm. thing that I thought of. And the second thing that I thought of was how close to 1968 this was. I mean, this is literally mm. the summer after one of the most volatile and pivotal years in American history. Um, and I was wondering, you know, as I was watching it, I was I was trying to figure out did I see tension in the crowd because you know mm. you know stuff was just so hot and I don't mean just literally you know physically hot <laughs> I mean the political and the political and social environment was just ridiculously hot and uh, and I was just trying to to try to gauge that so that, those are the first two things that that kind of you know crossed my mind as when I started to watch it initially yeah awesome okay uh, Raymond what about you brother. Uh, I mean, I I really loved this. Um, it's phenomenal, phenomenal music. It's one that I know for a fact I'm I'm going to put on a few more times. Maybe when I'm just kind of around the house and need some great background noise. Because in addition to being a a, a really great uh, kind of reclamation of this this moment in history that's been really uh, unjustly papered over, it it also is just I mean a phenomenal soundtrack. Like it, it, you know, this, this thing is just, it's firing all cylinders. I'm surprised at how great this footage looks. I'm surprised at how great it sounds. Um, I need to look more into, I probably should have done this before the podcast, but the, uh, it, what kind of restoration effort there was when they, when they came across this material. Um, so all, all around, I think it's, it, it's just a really, really awesome project, uh, a really noble effort to restore this. And, and, uh, hopefully this will be the seed of, uh, kind of uh, sort of planting this this moment back into the sort of cultural imagination, the way that Woodstock is seen as this sort of like huge pivotal cultural moment. Like this, this deserves to 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 be in the same, you know, uh, placed in the same historical context. And uh, yeah, I mean, I I don't have anything else to say about it. I mean, it's it's just. It's a really great, pretty straightforward documentary, but you couldn't ask for better material to cut a documentary from. So I, uh, I liked it a lot. Cool. Ryan, what about you? Um, I love, yeah, basically you just said, Raymond, I love the music. Like, like I, I would divide up my review, I guess, into kind of two different categories. Like, I love, I love concert films. I think that there, not enough of them are made. I mean, they're, they're, they're not for everybody, and it's not like something I'm going to put on you know, on, in any instance, but but I love watching televised concerts in a way. And so all the footage of that event, like every, uh, all this uh, stuff that we haven't seen, I would give, yeah, A plus. I loved every second of that. And then in terms of if I, and then if I had my other side of the review is kind of all of the Questlove's talking heads and stuff he implemented to kind of give his contextual story of the thing. That I'm not as, wasn't as thrilled about. I mean, like, there's parts of it that were great, but, you know, I, it definitely, I, you know, I could tell he was a first-time filmmaker. I'll just put it that way. Like, like to me, like, it, 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 there was a lot of interviewee stuff uh, that kind of made, it was like somebody trying to make a documentary. I hate to be harsh on this movie because it's a fucking great. Like, I, I, I'm not... I don't really have a lot of qualms with it, but but this is just kind of my big critique was just like, yeah, everyone that makes a music documentary has to, uh, you know, make this, whatever they're talking about seem like the most important thing that's ever happened, right? You know, and <laughs> and and it's funny because it's almost like a trope at this point where like somebody can make a pretty funny like Spinal Tappy doc, 
you know, that's basically a lot of the direct quotes of some of the things. And that's just, you know, you can't really credit that to like, because they're just sitting there recounting their time that they had, you know, and talking about how significant it was to them. Um, so, yeah, like, like I thought that basically the footage was amazing and then kind of his presentation of it all was worked well enough, but also to me was a little hokey sometimes, if I'm going to be totally honest. I wonder if there's like a, a little bit of a boy who cried wolf thing going on there when you say that. Like uh, like somebody talking about the Sex Pistols last concert or something like that and they do a documentary on it. I'm not I don't even know if there is. But then people are like, "Oh my god, it was this most it was the most important thing for punk and for like anti-establishment." And it's kind of like, "Oh shit, oh shit." And then so we are like so prone to listening to this trope as you called it. That's like, "Oh, this one single event was the most important thing that ever happened in that time period." And so we kind of get a little almost callous to it when I think that the, actually one of the really wonderful strong points of this documentary was actually the last it's like summed up in the last note and and this is kind of my take of the whole documentary is I really had like almost like a for me it was like a conceptual artifact that I was able to be like oh shit this thing was unearthed for us that had been hidden beneath these layers and layers and layers of sediment, cultural sediment, political sediment, and we're able to actually examine it now afresh. And there's that guy at the end that says, and I, I wrote the quote down, he says, um, he says, okay, yeah. He's like, I knew I wasn't crazy, but now I know. And it made me think that there was almost like this collective effort to gaslight, right? To be like, oh, this actually was a real important event, but it never got its importance due. And then so now when we watch it, it's hard to like maybe even to be like, oh, wow, no, it really was actually more important than like just some random concert by Whitesnake in the 1980s that a bunch of concert goers were like, oh, my God, it was so important to me. But because we've been so fucking calloused by these other documentaries that are like everything is the mo the fire fest. It was the most important cultural event that ever could have happened, <laughs> you know. And so I wonder if it's almost yeah, like can I just chime in really quick. Yeah, yeah. the the reason why I think this was so important, and I think the reflections from the participants were so important, is because of Woodstock. You see, mm -hmm. Woodstock is this historical event that is it, it, it's 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 you know it's such a part of music culture, American culture. It created yeah. and shaped the identity of you know of, of the movement. And this event happened two weeks before Woodstock. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Like this, this was before Woodstock. And so I think a part of me was like, okay, if Woodstock, <laughs> you know, can have this long-standing, you know, kind of you know marker as such an important historical American event, and we have an event that happened two weeks before Woodstock in Harlem. That no one would, and no one, no one even wanted to, you know, partake in because they, the filmmakers, the white filmmakers, by the way, couldn't find anyone to like to to purchase it, to buy it, to distribute it, you know. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I'm like, yeah, like this shit should be just as important, you know. <laughs> if nothing else, yeah. because Woodstock is 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 overplayed, you know. We, I mean, it, you know, it's. I mean, there, there's literally fashion lines. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You know, there's... Yeah, I was just about to jump in on that note, uh, Kamasi, and say that, like, if anything... I just... I, this, this movie makes me imagine, like, an alternate universe where we all got to grow up watching movies made by people who were at this concert rather than baby boomers making, like, fucking Forrest Gump or whatever, like, spun off of the Woodstock generation. Like... The, you know, the the huge cultural footprint that Woodstock had, which is mostly just like 
uh, you know, I don't know, taking Woodstock by Ang Lee at this point. Like no one's, <laughs> no one's really like. There's a new generation of filmmakers, you know, drawing from like '80s culture and '90s culture now. Like people just kind of age out of these roles in popular culture. But it is, it, it is kind of a fun thought experiment and and a sad one to boot. That like to think back on all the like all the incredible art that would have been influenced by this moment if only this moment had been able to break past its boundaries. We could let's 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 put a button on this for the minute and let's talk about this on the other side of the recap here. This is actually probably one of the most important things that we can talk about absolutely. So I'm glad we at least kind of started scratching the surface. So Ryan, I'll give you uh give you first first go uh, as soon as we get on the other side of the recap here. But I do want to just give a kind of a recap. I mean, how do you fucking recap a documentary? I don't know. I'll do my best here. I'm just going to give you a little sort of like, this is basically what's going on in the documentary. So Summer of Soul is a documentary that explores the Harlem Cultural Festival of 1969, which was an event that took place during the summer of 1969 in Mount Morris Park, which is now Marcus Garvey Park in Harlem, NYC. It was a celebration of black music and culture, and this doco basically spends a considerable amount of time examining hope in the face of adversity and the role of black music in bonding a pan-African sensibility together. And for me, I guess, of particular note are some segments that focus on the moon landing and the impact that that had on the broader culture, but also what did that mean for the concert goers at this time, since the moon landing was occurring at the same time that this festival was going on. And then of the uh, an examination of the impact of gospel music and evangelicalism on black music and black culture more broadly. So, of course, there's so much more to discuss in this very rich documentary, so we'll make sure to get to it as much as possible but for now that is the end of that doco and we got to cut to an ad real quick all right before we continue we got to give a quick shout out to our sponsor storyblocks storyblocks is the complete stock solution providing an unlimited library of over a million royalty free high quality video audio and images through cost-effective subscription plans. I use Storyblocks. We at Wisecrack use Storyblocks so that we can get all of our effects for After Effects editing, so that we can get music, so that we can get sound effects, so that we can get B-roll footage, etc., etc. If you are a creator and you're stuck, if you're a podcaster, if you're making funny TikTok videos, if you're a YouTube content creator, head over to Storyblocks and you can take advantage of everything that they've got in their library. So make sure you don't sacrifice your creative vision because you've you know, got a lack of a budget or resources or whatever because Storyblocks has a massive library of all of this high quality goodies that you can take advantage of by going to storyblocks.com slash wisecrack. Once again, that's storyblocks.com slash wisecrack or you can click the link down in the show notes to learn all about what Storyblocks has to offer. Once again, storyblocks.com slash wisecrack. Now, back to the show. All Right, Ryan, let's continue this conversation. What were you going to jump in and, and kind of add there? So I was going to, um, I, I totally agree with both of you guys or all you guys in terms of like that it's totally lame that, that the producer got shafted and didn't get this, you know, produced like a really cool uh, package. Like, you know, because obviously like Martin Scorsese had a whole, uh, as a young filmmaker, had his whole crew out there like filming Woodstock and stuff. And then they made that cool movie and that added to it. But um, so I, I totally agree just from a personal level that, yeah, it should be on the same level. However, I will say that it's a kind of to me a weird point to make cinematically throughout the film. Just the, the, mm. the like the continue the, the comparison always to Woodstock, because to me, Woodstock is a complete phenomenon. Right. It's like like not very many co- concerts that have ever happened get 
remembered for 50 years and that one was just that one was special because it had you know it was one weekend it was a, it had the whole thing of the producers you know being weighing over their head everyone coming in crashing the gates it was t full of mud it had it, it, it as opposed to this one and to just play devil's advocate of what we're talking about i mean this was the third year of a festival that goes on every week of the summer so you know it doesn't have that that kind of like oh this is the one big party that we everyone has to be at this weekend kind of vibe well, but, well, yeah, I mean, the the sort of other side of that argument is you're essentially saying, like, if this one were less effectively planned, it would be a bigger, it would well, be a bigger I, moment. I am saying or that. If it were I, more spontaneous. I, I, but I also, I also think you're discounting the degree to which the, the Woodstock documentary that uh, Martin Scorsese, you mentioned, who was a, a camera operator uh, for that. I, I mean, that documentary went a long way in, like, cementing and burnishing the legacy of Woodstock. Sure. Like, yeah, but the, you know, go. But that so that's that's the one argument with this one is like, if if this had that same kind of treatment, if it had that same kind of documentary, I think it is a fair comparison to, to constantly call attention to. Maybe I, I think that 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 Woodstock was was still in people's minds before the movie, and the movie just you know put images and stuff to it. But yeah, sure. If it had a doc accompanying it, you know, like this that came out at the time, would it be? Would we still be talking about it? Sure, there's an argument, but to me, it, it kind of, in my mind, just as a viewer, it discounts the coolness of the festival to just keep going, yeah, you know, this should be in everyone's mind like Woodstock. It's like, well, I mean, this is a cool thing that everyone, everyone's enjoying themselves, obviously, in this footage. It's like, like uh, to me, that's just like kind of a petty argument in my mind, if, if I'm going to be... Well, there's there's a really, we could talk with, with Kamasi here about this, too, because there's a really interesting, uh, like, theory of history I think we might be able to say here. I read an interview um, or just a, like a brief little thing where Questlove was actually talking about how, you know, there was a deliberate attempt to essentially write a revisionist history, one that ignored mm. the magnitude of this festival, right? So the question is, is who writes history and right. what events do they select to put forth as being emblematic of that culture, right? So when we think about America, we can't not think about Woodstock. I grew up thinking that Woodstock probably had greater impact than maybe it actually did, or maybe we forced it by fantasizing it and romanticizing it. We sure. turned it into something that didn't need to have the impact that it had. Like, maybe it was this cool fucking thing, but like, I've been to awesome festivals where crazy shit has happened, and I feel like my life was changed from it, but they weren't documented and then put forth as like this world-transforming thing, whereas Woodstock was. Now, why is that? There are all kinds of reasons for why people would select and then index this as a cultural marker. But I think that's what's kind of interesting. It's who writes history and what is this revisionist history? And then how can we kind of like unpack it and say, you know what? There are so many important historical events that we don't talk about or that they don't teach us or that we don't know about that are just as integral to American culture to um, this weird panoply of voices that we have in this cosmopolitan world that don't often get the value attributed to them or focused on them that maybe they ought to. What do you think, Kamasi? I mean, I would agree with that 100%. I think, you know, for me, it's just about, it's, it's, for me, it's about two things. It's about broadening the narrative of American music, right? It's like being inclusive of, of what a what American music is, is this broad, you know, you know, um, beautiful cacophony of various, you know, artists and sounds, you know, contributing to a particular cultural moment, right? So that's, to me, the most important thing is like, we're, 
this is not to minimize Woodstock at all. Like it's it's to say that there were so many cultural tropes, uh, so many uh, um, sonic submissions, if you will, that were contributed to a particular historical moment, right? And if we uh, uh, if we're to so it's not to dismiss Woodstock. It's to it's to broaden the landscape of of all of the things, particularly the musical contributions to a particular historical moment, right? Mm. And um, so that's that's one thing. I think the second thing is um, for me, it's also about acknowledging the fact that many of the people who were playing at Woodstock grew up listening to the people who were playing. <laughs> At Summer of Soul, like yeah. you know, you know, it's like you, you can't talk about rock and roll without talking about blues. And you got BB King, who was one of the progenitors of blues music, which most, if not all, you know, rock historians will say this is where we got it from, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, we got the guitar yeah. playing from Bill Bibley, from Chuck Berry, from BB King. You know, this Robert is where Johnson. we got, you know, Robert, all of that. So, like for me, it's 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 not. It's it's no. It, I don't feel the need to dismiss Woodstock. I just want, I just want to, I just want to acknowledge that this film serves as not even so much active as it serves as a uh, um um a, a, a counter, a, an additional point to be made to broaden mm. the understanding of of this particular time in history, as well as the contributions. Of, Amer of of blacks uh, black artists to American music outside of simply Jimi Hendrix, right? So that's right. That, that's my 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 take. I love that. Yeah. If uh, to me, I wish that's more the tone that that Questlove had kind of hit out was just like, look, this is the perfect counterpoint to this event that's going to happen in two weeks that you know that everyone is going to know about in fifty years. You know, and ours is literally what. Like you just said, like, this is where everyone got it from. You know, this is the roots of that. And no one knows about it, just like the rest of history. I mean, yeah, to me, that is a, uh, a much more interesting point to the thing. And also, you know, I'm from Memphis. So, like, obviously, like, I grew up with B.B. King and all those uh, Aretha Franklin and all that. So that's a huge part of my life. And, and honestly, me being from Memphis actually made the made this movie more powerful, I think, to me. You know, because to me, the, the best the part that hit me the most was was when Jesse Jackson was recounting, you know, uh, uh, the day Dr. Martin Luther King got shot in Memphis. And obviously that's like the fucking, I'm always just pissed that that's a part of our city's history, you know, and the, and whatever. And, but but hearing him relay that day was just like two music in this festival, in this context was so, I mean, that hit me. Like I definitely had, you know, some fucking goosebumps. Um, and I, I loved, yeah, all the historical music stuff with this, with BB King and all, and Stevie Wonder being there drumming like a crazy, you know, like a madman at nineteen, that was amazing. So, all, all, all I was going to say, Ryan, is that my my only counterpoint was essentially that, like, regarding the 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 manner in which Woodstock is treated as like something of an injustice within this film is just to underline the injustice of this moment in history being pa completely, you know, papered over. And not and not having the same opportunity to sort of like grow in the public imagination the way that Woodstock did because Woodstock, it, you know, went on to inspire a lot of people and a lot of artists and a lot of movies and music and et cetera et cetera. That's not to say that these artists didn't inspire those artists or these these artists didn't inspire others in their own right. But y you do have to concede that like 
this this moment in time, it didn't. It was never given the chance to like. It was never given the oxygen to flourish the way that Woodstock did because it it didn't it didn't have people who took him up on that documentary despite having all this incredible footage. You know, it didn't it didn't have like generations of of, of you know myth making and storytelling to sort of follow exactly, this up yeah. and and kind of like influence culture in that broader sense. But well, and and I think this is the beautiful thing is we need to not disparage myth making as though we don't always fucking myth make right like when we're telling history there's always a sense in which we're filtering our storytelling through prisms and like language and through consciousness we're telling we're telling myths i mean even a documentary that is supposedly quote unquote real or based on real events is some type of 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 myth creation because it's picking and choosing and it's using angles and it's using um emotion to try to create a story that tells um, a tradition of where people came from and what they believe and uh, and all of these things. So it isn't like for me, it isn't it isn't even something that's like, well, you've got myth making on one side and then there's real history. It's no, no, no. What are the myths that we tell ourselves and how does that form our kind of cultural consciousness, our collective consciousness? And I think it's just it behooves us to have as rich and robust of um, of a myth making practice as possible, you know. And then maybe you do sort of approach something like the quote unquote real. But of course, as a skeptical philosopher, I'm not sure that we ever really ch- touched the real anyway but yeah go ahead Ryan. I, I mean i would i would just counter kind of what raymond's saying though with the devil's advocate of just just sometimes these myths get told for weird reasons sometimes it's literally technology based like you're saying there wasn't a documentary crew on the ground you know and and i think that my, my devil's advocate too for this guy and why that footage isn't uh, getting around even after you know obviously attitudes changed and stuff is like you know, he put it in his basement for like the last 30 years and stuff. He like, like, I wonder how often he was actually going around hawking this stuff and whether at some point it literally didn't just become an abandoned project. And that's why, you know, maybe 40 of those 50 years or 30 of them or whatever, maybe this thing could have been out easier and it would have been more in the cultural consciousness. Because I do think that they're using this thing about it being unfound. Like it's, oh, this hasn't been seen in 50 years as like a marketing tool. That's me, my cynical take I under- on it. I understand yeah. that. But the, the injustice to which I'm referring is that Woodstock the movie came out a fucking year after Woodstock the concert. No, no one was put in a position with that footage to have to schlep it around for 30 years. They weren't... They weren't given that ultimatum to let this to to let this cultural moment languish in obscurity. Like that was immediately seized on as an opportunity to to burnish the legend of uh, of that one festival. Whereas this one, they they even say in the documentary, they all of the all of the same opportunities could have happened for this as like a moment to capture the cultural imagination or the the cultural zeitgeist. And that's my criticism of the movie is that, you know, I think that that is a, a, you know, that's a what if that maybe could have happened, but it's to me, that is uh, a besides the point of obviously the festival was cool. Everyone in the festival was, you know, it had every name uh, under the sun. That was awesome. And then the, the, everyone's enjoying themselves in the footage and stuff. I mean, I guess my, I'm saying it's like, like what? It, what makes a party cool? What makes a thing rememberable and stuff? Yeah, like like every party I've been to that was awesome didn't have a documentary that came out a year after, and that's the documentary is not what made it cool. I think that there's something to be said for just certain things get caught up in the public imagination, and even if they, you know, the story of Robert Johnson himself, like obviously there wasn't a documentary in that, but like that, like that's a story we told throughout time, and that it was popular enough to where it catches on. And I just think that all the things that led to Woodstock. 
you know, it had slightly cooler, you know, more stories stuff going on, th- th- storylines, but then this one was equally cool. It's just, yeah, like you're saying, it didn't get picked up in the imagination. Yeah, so this is this is the interesting thing, and I think we can probably transition to say then, okay, so then what was what was unique and special about this festival? Like, why is it something that's worth re-excavating or excavating, let's say? Um, and I think there's something, there was a quote in this where, uh, you know, I, I think the, the kind of concurrent event of the moon landing is one of like the really important points that this documentary is trying to make, that you have all of this money, this infrastructure spending, this this momentous um, race, this space race between these two world powers with the United States and the USSR at the time, trying to conquer the galaxy, to, to, to conquer the universe, right? And they invest all of this money to do it, and it is an amazing feat of engineering and technology and science and human ingenuity and political will. And then at the same time, on the planet, there's radical poverty, there's crime, um, there's all these things that are ravaging particularly the black community, and this documentary tries to bring those two things to tension, and I think then what it shows then is that there was something more about this event. Rather than it just being a party, right, it was actually – there was something political going on. There was something about a cultural shift going on. There was there was a lot more happening here than just some uh, – a group of people coming together, and I think as Kamasi said, the fact that this is in the shadows of 1968 – the documentary is very clearly trying to say, look, uh, you know, um, Martin Luther King was killed, Malcolm X was killed, Bobby Kennedy was killed, etc., etc., and this this concert was put on partly as a palliative, right, as a distraction, so that the people of Harlem wouldn't protest and riot like they had the summer before, and then also at the same time it turned into just a an amazing celebration of blackness. I don't know, Kamasi, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and I think that's a that's the point. Um, that I think we really have to keep in mind is not the, the, the fact that this is a concert and a, and, a, and a celebration of a particular time period in black music and American music is, is extremely important. But what's even more important is the context. And that's why yeah. I think that, you know, um, this film is so important because we can talk about like aesthetically what it did, what it didn't do. But, you know, remember, you know, there, there's, a, there's an interview with an audience member and, you know, and one of the reporters asks him, you know, what do you think about the moon? And he's like, what? <laughs> you know, it's like, wait, I, 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 I live in Harlem. <laughs> I think he said, yeah, it's like, you just wasted. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, dude, what do you mean the moon? It's like, what is this? <laughs> so you're, you're talking about, and, and here's the thing, like, you had the Kerner Commission, you know, you had all of these reports, you know, that had, that had really been out for the past, you know, three, four years that explicitly said one of the reasons why, you know, the Negroes are rioting is because of poverty and police brutality and all of these social conditions, right? So um, this whole idea that, I mean, you know, that, the, the, and it's, so, it's such a fascinating thing because you know, the Apollo moon landing is actually happening at the same time. It's not even like it's, you know, this is some different time. No, it's literally happening at the same time. So while you have this, you know, you have, you have America, you you know, uh, pouring millions and millions of dollars into the space program to obviously compete union, et cetera, et cetera. You have these up telling America, look, 
would show up at a quote unquote secular concert. And it's primarily because within the African-American cultural tradition, they're really the lines of demarcation between religion, religious awareness, and just like living your, it, th those lines are blurred. Mm -hmm. So it's not like, you know, with, because you gotta, you gotta remember you, when we're, when we're talking about African-Americans, we got to talk about the African part. And when we look at the history of, 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 of uh, African religion, there is no separation between divinity and humanity, right? And so, you know, to have Jesse Jackson there delivering a prayer, to have, you know, Edwin Starr, you know, um, Edwin, excuse me, Edwin Hopkins there, um, to have people who are in Harlem who are all religious persuasions, but all black, it, it was, it's, it, it wasn't, uh, it's not something that made people feel uncomfortable. It, you know, it wasn't something that people weren't used to. This is something that's such an integral part of African-American life. It's, it's not even something that people even consciously think about, honestly, to be, to be quite honest with you. So I can see from, from, from an outsider's perspective, it may look kind of weird. Like, why is this, you know, but in the black community, it's like everybody, even people who aren't religious, quote unquote, pray or are, are amenable to prayer, um, you know, and there's no, there, there are very few cultural African can um, uh, experience when there's an integral, very few. Uh, graduations, you know what I'm saying, baby shower, you, you know, uh, football games. I mean, it doesn't make a difference. Somebody's going to offer a prayer. Somebody's going to, you know, <laughs> somebody's going to do something that has some type of some type of religious affect. So while uh, I, I, I just, I, I think it's important to, just to understand religion isn't so much, isn't a stretch, isn't a thing that, you know, mm. is happening that is some type of weird phenomenon. No, this is, this is all a part of African-American history and culture. And you see it all being interweaved in this one particular moment in this concert. But, you know, no one's, if you look at the audience, no one's tripping. No one's like, oh, God, we got to listen to gospel music. No, oh, God, we got to, you know, no right, one's, right. Yeah, yeah. you know, feeling on. Yeah, it's just, it's just, a, it's just so matter of fact, you know. Um, yeah, it was, it and was, so I it was think, so interesting I, because. Go ahead. No, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Finish, finish up your thought there. Right? No, 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 I'm finished. I'm finished. Okay. Yeah. I, I was just going to say it was interesting because the way that they'd be like, oh, cool. Now we've got a freaking gospel singer coming up and now we've just got somebody who's singing um, whatever songs about like life or now we've got Nina Simone who's going to come up and she's going to sing about the struggle. There was no like, okay, it's prayer hour time or it's this. And there was there was no herky jerky way uh, or, or like presentation of these various voices. It was just kind of like, okay, cool. Now we got this happening. And at least the way that the documentary was framed like you said, nobody in the crowd is like, oh shit, here comes the gospel music. I'm leaving now, you know? It was kind of like, yeah, this is this is all part of the the black cultural experience, the black music experience. And they would even say like certain singers, I can't remember, but certain front men, they're like, oh, he was raised in the church. He was raised as a gospel singer. So he knew how to do the gospel runs. He knew how to do that thing because it was just so integral to even Motown's music, right? It was just part... That's the point. That's the point. Many of those artists, um, most of the time when they're performing in front of large audiences, they're performing in front of integrated audiences. So for some of these artists, it's really kind of the first time they're in front of a mass of black people like that. So they're, they're doing that. David Ruffin is doing extra runs. He's taking it to church big time because he just doesn't have that opportunity to do it as much. Look, he's, he's from the Temptations. The Temptations were performing in front of integrated audiences. 
He's performing yeah. for all these black folks. He's gonna give. He's gonna do all the gospel runs. You see what I'm saying? So it's yeah. that's yeah. the that's the one of the things that happens within you know the African American experience. Like, oh, this is the audience. Okay, I can I can do this now. I feel way more comfortable. You know, you know, kind of reaching into my bag, right, into these cultural tropes that are very familiar to this audience that I grew up doing that everybody else understands. And it's just kind of like this exchange that happens between the audience and the performer that you don't. And there's there's a great interplay there when uh, they they basically position Sly as like the anti David Ruffin in the way. That yeah, they, yeah. I, I think it's when when they're uh, they're kind of going into the context about Sly and the Family Stone, and they're they're like, yeah, everyone at the time was wearing suits. You know, the Pips wore suits, the Temptations wore suits. Not like, <laughs> but then Sly comes out in this like huge chain. He's wearing this leisure. suit suit with the vest he just looks so he looks so great and then they're like yeah and that everyone was kind of looking up at him and he's he, you know he's got a white drummer and all this stuff and they're just like yeah whatever this is it's going to be different like there it was there is the ministry this... of funk man it was yeah, the ministry absolutely. of funk <laughs> yeah it, it was kind of great i did wonder that i wondered almost i in my in my weird philosophical brain i had this i had okay you've got you've got like um You've got the, the 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 boys in their suits, right? And they're doing their thing and their choreographed dances. And then you've got the gospel music. And then what you have is sort of Sly, who is kind of like, like they're calling it a ministry. It's almost like he does the thing with music that the gospel music does, but he doesn't have to appeal to some transcendent God. He's like the materialist, right? He's like the one that's like, he's like, nah, it's just about this world and I'm everyday people and it's just about like us here and now and I've got this big fucking gold choker and I got these purple glasses on and like, it was like, no, we're not appealing to anything outside. It's just about this right here and now. And that's why I loved it when they called it a ministry of funk because I was like, oh, so it's like, it's like religion, but without religion, right? And music is kind of portrayed in this documentary as having this power that I don't want to even say it's transcendent because transcendent implies that it's like above, right? It's like earthen. It's like before us. It's like pre-linguistic. It's like pre-conscious. It's this way of uniting and bonding people together. It was the drums they talk about, right? Like there's something about the drum that just gets you and connects you. And it doesn't matter if you're Puerto Rican. It doesn't matter if you're black. It doesn't matter if you're in East Harlem. It doesn't matter where you are. You hear those drums and you all speak the same language. And there's something about it's, it's like they talk about it being primal, right? This freedom music is primal. And there's something that, that it's almost like, well, maybe when language comes in, that's the whole fucking problem. That's when we start like carving out and you're saying you're this and that's this and you're over there and you belong here and here's hierarchy. But music is like this universal language that bonds people together. And there was something kind of lovely about that. And Sly was kind of like the embodiment of that in this documentary for me. He was like the one that was like, okay, you've got... I got the guys in suits, and that's like the old guard, maybe, of, of like, you know, like uh, Gladys Knight and the Pips. And then you've got, like, this gospel music that's always been a part of it. But I'm kind of, like, going to be like, oh, guess what? We can still have all of that shit, but without the appeals to transcendence. We can still just be, like, here and now in present. I don't know. That was kind of just something I thought about. Well, I think the other thing, too, is just as a, a just a, a little footnote about the religious importance of, of this particular um, concert is Edwin Hawkins um, is two things about Edwin Hawkins. First of all, Oh Happy Day is the very first gospel song that hits the charts and it freaks out the black church or a certain uh, conservative, um, you know, components of the black church because 
it's secular music. It's 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 gospel music getting secular airplay, right? Mm. So that's the first thing that happens. It's the first really, you know, it's a number one hit, right? Oh, happy day, but it's a gospel song, right? But it's a get it gets it comes a pop hit. That's the first thing. The second thing is Edwin Hawkins is from the Church of God in Christ, and one of the things that's important about this this historic denomination is the Church of God in Christ comes out of Azusa Street, right? 1906, right? The street it's, revival. It's the right? revival. It's the street revival. Yeah. The Church of God in Christ comes out of this interracial you know, moment in American history where you have this three-year revival, and the Church of God in Christ becomes this huge black denomination that not only um, like surpasses all of the traditional kind of Methodist and Baptist denominations, but they also... Um, uh, become the the harbinger, the, the 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 producers of some of the best black musicians in the history of America, right? So if you want to look at anybody from the 1960s all the way to the present moment, if you look at any African American who has church roots, 90% of the time they're coming out of the Church of God in Christ. And if you want to look at gospel, black gospel music, and specifically. Almost all of the biggest gospel music musicians in the past 30 years have come out of the Church of God in Christ. Fred Hammond comes out of the Church of God in Christ. The Clark Sisters come out of the Church of God in Christ. Kirk Franklin comes out of the Church, Church of God in Christ. The Winans family comes out of the Church of God in Christ. You know, so, you know, the Church of God in Christ, and of course, mm -hmm. Edwin Hawkins, right? The Church of God in Christ, and not only that, one more thing. If you go to a Baptist or Methodist or any other denomination where there's a black church, the musicians are all from the Church of God in Christ, <laughs> right? So, like, it, it doesn't matter where you are. So that's another kind of feature on, that, that plays into this particular concert is that the Church of God in Christ is, is featured, you know, with Edwin Hawkins, and they become some of the best musicians for the next 40 years. And not just the best musicians in the church, but, like, half of the musicians that are playing in bands now, right, uh, the black musicians that are playing in band have a father, or the, they themselves grew up in the Church of God. So that's an extremely important, you know, uh, thing to, to to identify and to note in this film as well. Like, like just just a little. What is it about um, the impact of of Pentecostal charismatic Christianity that has that has served as like a boon to the black community. Is it just the the promise of like redemption in a world of suffering? Like like uh, there was one song and I can't remember. I wish I would have written down who it was that sings it. It was one of the women that sings it. it was, I think it was called Africa. And in it, she talks about how Africa is a land flowing with milk and honey. And it made me think, well, that's obviously an allusion to the Old Testament promises of the promised land. And I was like, okay. So in this moment of like pan-African sensibility, is Africa viewed at that time as like a promised land? Is it like this, not that like literally if we go to the continent of Africa, but it's more of like a mythological idea that they can use to, to pull them? It, all, it always has been. So, okay. it, you know, it, I mean, you're talking about, you know, um, if you listen to like old Negro spirituals, and you listen to and what slaves sung. They would they would interestingly they would commingle both New Testament and Old Testament verses together, right? You know they would talk about they would talk about Jesus and they would talk about Moses at the same time. You know going down in Egypt land, I'm gonna get to freedom. They would they would they would commingle two completely different narratives, 
But what would what would be the, the common feature would be escaping from Egypt, being free from Pharaoh, right? So you have that there, and you have Psalm 68, Ethiopia would stretch her hands. You have all of these kind of, you know, uh, biblical narratives that show up within, within the context of black culture. I think the other thing, too, is um, when, you, when we're, uh, you know, looking at the role of, you know, gospel music and, you know, this, this notion of freedom, I think it's important, you know, to really name that these biblical illusions are constantly throughout, you know, black music. I'll give you a perfect example. The group, it's not featured in this documentary, but there's a group that comes out two years later um, in 1971. And that group has biblical and uh, illusions, African illusions, all throughout their entire music. And that's Earth, Wind, and Fire. Hmm. Right? So, you, I mean, you, literally on their album covers, it's like pyramids on every other album cover. It's like, you know, the pharaohs. It's like, <laughs> right, you know. And then there's constantly these allusions to you know, to Africa, to Egypt, to spirit, you know, like, keep your head to the sky. I mean, like, all of these, you know, kind of, you know, biblical illusions that you hear, you know, um, in, in Earth, Wind & Fire's music. And so I think, you know, that's one thing. But you, you, you asked a specific question, and I just want to make sure I answer that about, because there's something that I wanted to say that you, you asked a specific question, though, about... What was it about, I guess, just, like, what is the role of... of um of this kind of like religious consciousness in um is it is it is it a palliative is it something that pulls that like that like impels a group of people forward that are seeking liberation is it the the like hope hope against hope sort of thing and is it because you have this thing that you're able to hold on to as like the promise of a better world or a promise of a future that is not yet realized is it is it something like that because it does seem that evangelicalism is so um embedded within the american black experience yeah i think the, the one last point that i wanted to make i think that that will help flesh that out a little bit is the the difference between you know kind of traditional protestant denominations and kind of theological and doctrinal you know approaches you know you know methodist baptist presbyterian the difference between that and the Church of God is the Holy Spirit. And the reason why the Holy Spirit is such an important feature is because it connects to two things within the context of African-American culture. Number one, it connects to African traditional religions, right? This wave and move of the Spirit, kind of like this effervescent, you know, kind of, you know, you don't know when the Spirit is going to hit you, but it just does. That's very, very West African. That's very, very West African. And the second thing, and probably the most important thing, because this ties into the political and social dimensions of African-American life, is the fact that because you have the power of the Holy Spirit working within you, that gives you a level of social agency, right? Because you don't have to worry about going through a priest. You don't have to worry about going through a politician. You don't have to worry about fighting on the front lines for social justice. You can go directly to God, and God gives you the power of, you know, of his might, um, um, particularly within you as an individual, right? You have the ability to connect with the almighty God. And because you have that ability, because the spirit moves within you, you have the ability to affect and create change. So while, you know, the, the, you know, you do have this, the, you know, obviously the Church of God in Christ um, has, you know, these great musicians it's the it's what the theology communicates through the music that speaks to a particular 
social reality that African-Americans love to hear. I mean, and, and like feed off of, it's like, what I can, I can, I, by the power of God can determine, you know, my own social reality. I'm, I'm with this, you know, and that's any, and that's, and, and quite frankly, that's any group of people who have been historically oppressed. I mean, you look at Brazil, what's the largest, you know, <laughs> you know, religious, religious movement in Brazil, neo-Pentecostalism, right? You know, <laughs> you know that's the, that's the and that those churches are have taken over. South Korea, what's the largest you know religious movement? Neo Pentecostalism, like Neo Pentecostalism, mm-hmm. you know, uh, has has swept the world, and it particularly catches fire with groups of people who have been historically marginalized because it gives them a mm-hmm. sense of power and agency. Then, then I think maybe the last thing we can say then is okay. So then, what is it about music in particular? that this documentary really highlights as being a sort of expression of the quote unquote spirit, right? Like there's this really, there's this really lovely moment and it's kind of just a real quick, quick thing where they're talking about the moon landing and how like people are spending so, America is spending so much money on this technology to get us to the moon, but they don't care about things going on here. And one of the interviewees, I believe it was archived interview viewee says, America has no soul. And I feel like there's something that's like, okay, because America, uh, from from the point from the standpoint of this critique, because America is so concerned with like investing in technology and, and beating the USSR and getting us to space and um, and all this other stuff, that it, it loses its soul because its focus isn't on the here and now. And then there's something then I think that's implied about oh, but but this festival is an expression of soul, right? Like a true expression of soul. And there's something about music as being an expression of soul. And so just real quick, the last thing we'll say is if we can just go, we'll just go around real quick. Raymond, what do you think is going on here? What does it mean to say that America has no soul? And then in what sense, why is this documentary called The Summer of Soul? What is it about soul that this documentary is telling us about? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oh man, I mean this this is a huge question. I they they um they show Stokely Carmichael in this um in this documentary I think at one point. And uh you know the the sort of revolutionary spirit is sort of cutting through this whole thing, but I always think of that. I think it was a Stokely Carmichael quote where he said that, you know, in order for a peaceful protest to have an effect, your opponent has to have a soul or a conscience and America has no conscience. Um and this just kind of, I mean, ultimately just circles back to what I was referring to before um, in that, you know, this this is a movie that would be a lot different if it had come out contemporaneously with this, uh, with this concert. And I think there are obvious reasons for why uh, people turned it down back then, because uh, it's a predominantly uh, black experience or is at least tied to the black community um and uh, that that's kind of what i'm talking about before with like woodstock was given this room to grow because uh, america's culture and legacy is written predominantly by by white transcribers um the what i was going to say the the 
the subtitle of this film, When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised, of course, a, a, a sort of reference to Gil Scott Heron, um, who also had that uh, the poem Whitey on the Moon, um, where he's sort of going through all of these uh these problems that they allude to in this movie that that are affecting people here at home while we're just throwing money away on what ultimately amounts to like a pissing contest um that you know there there seems to be this this boundless energy boundless resources put towards affirming america's exceptionalism uh but there's never anything to take care of the least amongst us um and so that's the, the the long and the short of it, you know, the notion that America does not have any soul. I, I think the the proof is in the pudding. You know, we we talked about uh, or alluded to at least the um the to to put it in um, uh, media friendly terms, the political and civil unrest of the era. Um, you know, following a string of high profile assassinations uh, happening happening contemporaneously with the Vietnam War. Um, you know, it's it really is this this movie is is capturing this moment and kind of, you know, offering not necessarily a corrective to uh, the sort of established legacy of this country as uh, as, you know, uh, exemplified by something like Woodstock. Um, but it, it just kind of gives this reverse mirror image that says, you know, hey, maybe maybe this this stuff wasn't just, as Woodstock has been described, just a spontaneous expression of of love and empathy and reflects the best in the best of us. Um, you know, sometimes this stuff was a, a response to, uh, and that's not to say that there, there wasn't like a, an anti-war element within the Woodstock crowd. It was predominantly hippies and stuff. Um, but you know there this this is a beautiful moment in history that was born as uh, kamasi said was kind of born out of a sense of discontent that was that that was you know given uh, given this opportunity uh, in in a way because people had to have something they had to have something to feel good about and to you know uh, affirm their identity not necessarily as americans because uh, America, you know, then as now is uh, as brutal to, uh, you know, a lot of folks domestically as it has been uh, foreign policy wise. But this this was an opportunity for people to, uh, you know, proudly like reclaim their identity by by creating this this movie. And it was a, a proud expression of identity then. And I, I, I do I, I think it's a shame that I mean. I, I grew up listening to all of these acts, and the first time that I heard about this 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 concert was uh, when this documentary came out, and I I do think that's a uh, you know that's that's just a shame with regards to our collective history. Ryan, what do you think? Uh, what do you think uh, it means to have soul? Well, in this context, I mean, I think in the movie, yeah, they said it uh, along with the line about the assassinations, and and really. Um, so, so, so I, at least for that, like, like, like you always forget how, in the, you know, that is insane thinking about how many high profile assassinations happened within a couple of years of each other. Think about that happening now, right? Just 
and how that would just shake you if it happened. Okay, the first one, okay, maybe it's a fluke. Second one, holy shit, what's happening here? Third time, you know, Bobby Kennedy all of a sudden gets killed or something. Uh, Malcolm X, MLK, like, you're like, okay, we clearly, it's like, uh, to use an overused phrase, like, 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 this is, something's going on here to where, it, uh, like, people have no soul. This is an evil fucking, you know, something is perverse in our society if these people are supposed to bring hope, you know, to these hopeless situations or are just getting pecked off. So I think that, that, that in the context, that's kind of what they were talking about with that. But in terms of the music, uh, referring to the music, I mean, it is always perverse to me, especially coming from Memphis, Tennessee, where all this stuff, you know, home of the blues, birthplace of rock and roll or whatever. I mean, it's a perverse thing to think like, all right, th this, the roots of the music is, is, is people coping in, in plantation fields all of a sudden that gets uh, uh, translated into, uh, you know, they, they put it to music with blues and stuff. And uh, it's just like we, you know, people having, finding hope in, in music because it's a universal thing. Anybody can do it in a hopeless situation. And then all of a sudden it gets commodified over and over again, marketed. And then, you know, uh, Elvis Presley in some uh, appropriates or whatever. And then, every, and then it becomes this whole other thing. And it's so far away from the soulful uh, uh, roots of the music. And, and I think that somebody, you can make an argument that it's like that kind of is a, is, is like, just watching this art form that grew out of your pain. And then all of a sudden it's just like everybody does it just to dance and stuff and have a good time. It has nothing to do with the original thing. I mean, yeah, I, I think you could apply that kind of logic to, to that line. Yeah. Kamasi, uh, we got 30 seconds here. We're running a little long. Give us what, what does it mean to have soul? Oh gosh. You know, the, 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 the interesting thing is the first thing that, comes to my mind when we're talking about soul is a movie that just came out uh which ironically of course quest love had a, something to do with that as well uh had a, had a lot to do with that as well uh that the movie pixar and i think i think it's apt actually because i think what it does is it is it deals with both the transcend the um the transcendental reality or i should say the you know the the kind of redemptive reality that black music points to, right? There, it points to the existential conditions while at the same time trying to point to the to the transcendent moment. And I think to me, that's the, the best of what black music is. And I think you saw it in this particular, uh, you saw this in this concert, you saw this in, the, in this film, is that no matter what the, the situation is, you know, the fact that we're coming on, on you know, uh, we're in the middle of a Vietnam War, we have all of these riots and rebellions that are happening and we have all these assassinations but yet people black people still have hope you know um and and i think and i think that notion of hope speaks to the soul of of to me what america's you know hope is which is you know the the soul of, of america has always been located within the people various groups of people but black people in particular who keep on pushing the envelope and saying we are better than this and we can become better than, than what we are. Mm, nice. Okay, um, I think we got to wrap it up there. For people who are fans of the show, you know that we did not do a mailbag section this week uh, or segment this week, and we did not dip into the voicemails. But, of course, you can call in. We Last episode when we were talking about Moonlight, we basically said, please just flood us with suggestions for films that you would like us to cover. We have gotten boatloads and boatloads of things that we could cover. Here are just a couple of the suggestions that we've gotten so far. Blind Spotting, uh, the documentary 3. 
Three Identical Strangers, The Writer, Frank, The Wailing, The Host, Gattaca, which we've already done. Gattaca was great. I think that was early. That was like the third episode or fourth episode, wasn't it, Ryan? But I, went, yeah, I, I, we did it I don't know if it was that early, but yeah, we've done it. It was way back in the day, but thank you for the Rex. Uh, Waves, Another Round, which I really want to do another round because that was my favorite film of last year. Uh, the Conversation, God, it's fucking so good. So please keep flooding us with your recommendations or with your suggestions for films you'd like us to cover. You can email us, movies at wisecrack.co. That's movies at wisecrack.co. And of course, please call in. Give us your thoughts on Summer of Soul, on Moonlight, on anything from our back catalog. Call in. Give us your thoughts. You can call us at 1-213-534-8807. That's 1-213-534-8807. And give us your thoughts. Ask us your questions. We will address them. Okay, we're running late. We'll just do it real quickly. Everybody, where can people find you on the internet all at the same time? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Ryan, where can people find you on the internet? <laughs> at Ryan Shorts. At Ryan Schultz. Boom. Raymond. Uh, yeah, you can find me at Crematoria. All right. Kamasi, what do you want to plug real quick? I know we already talked about your graphic novel and your documentary, but can you do a quick real a plug real quick before we let you go? Well, I, you can reach me at, uh, uh, at Amazing Profit uh, on IG. And, yeah, look out for, for Born in the Struggle in the Fall and the Griot's History in a couple of months. Uh, great Migration. It'll be a series. So it's just a, so if you have a, a like a 7th through 12th grader, uh, and you want them to read some, you know, a supplemental material on African-American history, check it out. Sweet. And, of course, I'm Austin Hayden. You can find me at all the places. Just Google my name. I'm sure something will come up at some point. And if not, no big deal. Just come back to listen to the podcast next week because we're going to keep doing sick stuff. We love you. Ryan, take us out, brother. Goodbye from Hollywood, California. This has been Show Me the Meeting. It's the summer of soul, baby.